So three things happened this morning that um, caused this uh, talk to come together in this particular way. One of them was I got up and looked at the moon early this morning. Uh, Did you see the moon just this morning? It was very beautiful. And I had a whole thought about the moon, which I'll tell you about in some elaboration. But I looked at the moon. It was so beautiful. And it was clouded over with clouds. It was shrouded in clouds. And I thought to myself, that's just such a good image for the work that we're doing here, that the moon is so bright and brilliant and lights up the whole sky, shining clear. And it gets covered with clouds. It's the same moon behind there. I thought it's just the same with our heart, you know, that we have these lovely hearts that are born to be responsive and empathic and Uh, be able to reach out in all the ways that they do with goodwill, with consolation, with empathic joy. And every once in a while there are clouds in front of it. I thought we should just think about our practice here as not establishing the moon. The moon is already there. It's just blowing the clouds away that we're doing. should talk a little bit about how the technique of making these resolves over and over again works to really dispel the clouds that keep that moon from manifesting itself. So the first was the moon. And then I read something in a Smithsonian magazine about uh, uh, Audubon, John James Audubon, the person who drew all the birds, the person for whom all the Audubon societies are named for. And I'll tell you about it in a minute. And then the third was uh, Sally said, uh, pick a benefactor. And um, however many times I've picked a benefactor to do this kind of practice with, a whole list of benefactors that I use regularly. And something about what she said this morning, maybe it was the line about someone who inspires you enormously, or someone that your heart picks up in a certain way, which is when you think of that person. And somehow I thought of Mahagosananda, who is very old now. He's probably the senior, I'm sure, surely the senior prelate in this, in this tradition in Cambodia. And he's old now. Um, and I thought about the ways in which I have been touched by his work. And suddenly it occurred to me, in all the times I've thought about Mahagosananda with great respect and admiration, I've never actually done metta results for Mahagosananda. I should do that. He should be my benefactor for today. So I tell you that partly because I want to tell you about Mahagosananda, and partly because I want to tell you that it's all right to change your benefactor every once in a while. And uh, particularly if somebody comes to mind and you think, oh, and your heart just picks up the point of picking a benefactor to work with in this way is that it picks the heart up. When Sally was saying today at some point, she said sometimes it's hard to get this kind of practice rolling. It kind of chugs along. If you find something that jump starts it, then that's a good thing to do. That's a skillful means. I think it's wonderful to have a whole repertory of benefactors. So I'll get to tell you a little bit about Mahagosananda. And they all will be in the service of telling you what I, what I think happens when we do this practice in this way, why it works, and how I think it, it's really the universal practice that has the potential of changing the world. 
certainly changing my inner world. So I'll tell you what I read about James Audubon this morning. I wrote it out because I was so impressed with it. It's a story about Audubon and the way he, uh, in, in, uh, uh, it's long ago now, the way he did treks into the wilderness, the way he drew the birds that we now recognize as those wonderful plates of all these different birds and wildlife. It's amazing what he did, and he was an amazing artist. And uh, at one point, the article was talking about his wife. He married a woman named Lucy. They had a long life together, and he loved her enormously, and he wrote about her with great respect. And this is a, uh, a sentence that he wrote about her, uh, particularly talking about the year just after the death of uh, an infant daughter that they had, uh, a baby daughter that died in the first year of her life of a fever. He wrote about her in this quote, she felt the pangs of our misfortunes perhaps more heavily than I, but never for an hour lost her courage. Her brave and cheerful spirit accepted all, and no reproaches from her beloved lips ever wounded my heart. Was I not ever rich? Don't you love that? I just thought that was so wonderful. First of all, I thought about no reproaches. Whoa! You know, I would love to have no reproaches. I get irritable if I call the, the stove repair and they put me on hold for too long. You know, then, I mean, on very minor things, way up to the way we're behaving in the world as a nation, but, and in between everything else. But no reproaches. It's really actually for me, and this is what I want to talk about in this talk, it's really actually a sign to me of great wisdom not to reproach. It's the great understanding things can't be other than what they are. This is the karma of this moment. No reproaches is incredible. She never for an hour lost her courage. Wow, I would also like to have that never for an hour losing my courage. I despair. I become distraught. I call my friends. I talk to them. We hold each other up. We remind each other that Lots of people in the world share our belief that human beings are fundamentally amiable animals and that actually we could wake up and take care of each other and have a good world. And then I feel better after I talk to them. But in between, I lose my courage. She never for an hour lost her courage. Her brave and cheerful spirit accepted all. Whoa, that's another very big, amazing thing. Her brave and cheerful spirit accepted all. That's another thing I'd like to do. Here's probably the most important line of it all. It says about the no reproaches. Never, no reproaches from her beloved lips ever wounded my heart. It's such a telling thing to me to remember that a reproachful person, a resentful person by putting out the reproaches and the resentments really wounds the hearts of everybody else around. That it, it really echoes for me the teaching that we've all been saying so far about the cultivation of one's own good heart and then the manifestation of one's own good heart 
really is on behalf of everyone else. To do anything else puts more suffering into an already suffering world. It wounds other people's hearts and it heals other people's hearts to be able to not do that. It's really a blessing. It really is blessing practice to be able to manifest oneself in the world without reproaches. And I did love it that he said about his wife that she was courageous. Because I think the courage that I recognize in that, in her pain of the loss of a child, in anybody's mind, when we look at the world and look at our own personal pain in the world and the global pain in the world, to be able to have an awareness of the pain, surely Lucy Audubon felt pain about that. He said she felt the pain more than I did. But for each of us to acknowledge the pain in our lives and the pain in the world and to have around it a frame large enough to hold that pain that gives the natural good heart room to respond, some way to put that pain in a larger context. One of the larger contexts that helps me a lot is remembering that the kind response heals, holds my heart up and holds other people's heart up is really the act of compassion for myself and everyone else. And actually, Lucy Audubon reminded me of Deepama in that description. Deepama was a Bengali woman. She's dead now, um, maybe about 10 years ago. She died. She was uh, the teacher of many of my teachers and several of my friends. And I actually had the great pleasure of meeting her when she uh, came to the United States to teach. My teachers brought her over from India and brought her around to the various cities that they taught in. And um, people came to see her in all of those places. She stayed in my house in Kenfield when... uh, She was here for a week. It was an amazing experience. She didn't speak English, Uh, so they had a translator. Uh, But actually, you felt about her, her teaching. She actually, they had a translator, and people came, and they asked questions, and they had uh, classes in my living room every evening for a week. And people asked questions, and she answered them. And truth to tell, I don't remember a single question or a single answer but I remember how it felt to be in a room with her. And it was an extraordinary experience. And someone, uh, many people interviewed her and wrote about her. There's a book called Knee Deep in Grace, which is um, a compilation of people's memories of Deepama. And one of the questions that people asked her is, uh, what's your mind like? She had an extraordinary practice, you know. She had such a demeanor of tranquility. I said, what's your mind like? And she said, what's in your mind? And she said, well, there's nothing much in there except uh, concentration and peace and metta. So I thought, I'd like that kind of a mind. (laughs) It was wonderful to be with that kind of a person who had that kind of a mind. I can hardly imagine what it would be like to be a person who had that kind of a mind but I would like to have it. 
And the fact that she had it means to me that it is a humanly possible thing to cultivate. And I think that's what we're all doing here. We are cultivating the capacity to keep a mind that's peaceful and respond with blessings all the time, which is what a metta mind is. That's what this practice is about. So there are two main points that I want to make in what I say tonight. They both carry the threads that have already been mentioned by everyone who's taught so far. Really by everyone, by Donald when he talked about the precepts as making us safe and at ease. By Sally and by Guy this morning talking about this is the natural heart manifesting what it does naturally, using concentration as a way of clearing the mind so that that heart can manifest itself. I want to make those two points again, that this practice that we're doing of cultivating the metta mind or heart, it's not creating something new. It's back again to the image of the moon. Caring is what's natural for human beings that we actually are congenial. We are friendly by nature when we're not frightened. I looked at the moon this morning, I thought, we're just like that. We would shine our light clearly if we didn't become bewildered by our own stories, if we didn't become bewildered by the upsetting energies that keep coming and going in our minds and bodies just because we're people. If we didn't have a whole lifetime of views that we've established as truths that cause our mind to form an identity around the truth and then trap us into liking this and disliking that and struggling with liking and disliking. Fundamentally, we have a capacity for empathy. We can feel how other people feel. When our minds are at ease, we care about how other people feel. We're moved by pain and joy. And the extraordinary recent experience of that is how moved the whole world was by the news of the tsunami last week. The emails are full of different ways that people can contribute, can help, Apparently, people in enormous numbers and with great generosity are reaching out to help. We don't only respond to people's troubles. We respond to people's joys. One of my favorite things is watching, um, oh, either the Olympics, where uh, you see people who are so uh, marvelously talented at whatever it is they can do, high jumping or figure skating or whatever it is that they do, fast swimming. And they do what they do and they finish and they win and they're so excited and you look at their faces and you feel so good for them. And then the camera often pans over to their partner or their parent, also excited and pleased. And I feel so excited for them. Don't you feel pleased? I love it when when the quarterback in the Super Bowl completes a pass into the end zone and you see his mother 
sitting in the stands. I don't have anybody in my family who ever played football, but I could imagine how that quarterback's mother, can't you imagine how a quarterback's mother feels? It's because we're human beings and we have that capacity to think, if that were me, if I were in that situation, this is how I would feel. And we feel it for them and we're happy for them. We do those things spontaneously. We delight with other people. We can console either in actuality or in our heart. You know, the, the experience really, we've talked on and on about trying to connect with the feeling behind the metta. And sometimes people say, you know, I don't feel too much. And really, uh, I'm not a very sentimental person. Um, but you know how I know I feel? I actually feel in my body the sense of my heart jumps up or falls down when I hear certain news. I don't know actually if it's my physical organ of my heart or whether it's my emotional heart. But there are things that you hear a certain news and your heart jumps up. It's just so happy to hear that. Or uh, the other day I got an email in the midst of all this flurry of emails with lots of stories of people who... uh, survived and told their stories and they're all very um, uh, both alarming and extraordinary and uplifting and you feel so good for them but you don't know the people you can imagine how they feel but suddenly in the midst of all the emails I got an email and you know how it says on the subject line what the email's about so I get an email from someone at Spirit Rock and the subject is Sita is safe in India. And I, my, I felt really my heart jump up. And the truth is, I didn't know that Sita was even in India. So I didn't know that Sita was unsafe in India. But apparently, when this happened, people who knew that Sita was a Sita is one of our cooks, and we know her for a long time. We've really, you know, done decades together now. So... I didn't know that Sita was there to worry about. Had I known, I would have worried. But here, ex post facto, the news, Sita is safe in India before I even open the email. I feel my heart jumps up. That happens to all of us because we care about people. We care about people that we know tremendously. And that's why this metta practice is set up exactly in the way that it is. We start with the people we know because that's the easiest and it makes the most immediate response. But really in this outpouring of interest, uh, of concern in the whole world. These are for people mostly that people don't know, but we imagine that they're just like us and they feel just like we do. It's really important at this point to remember what Guy said last night um, about this being a concentration practice as much as a director of the heart practice. It's both, you know. Really, it directs the heart and it, it, it turns the attention towards one's own goodness. That's an important part of it. These resolves really remind us that that's what makes us happy. In addition, the very repetitive quality of this practice, the saying over and over again, the excluding from the mind any other material other than the wish for well-being for oneself or somebody else is by its very repetitive nature and it's by its exclusive nature a concentration practice. 
concentration practices really focus the mind. Deepened states of concentration produce, as he mentioned last night, extraordinary states of tranquility. One of the other things that they do is they dispel the different kinds of energies that cloud the mind. Remember when I said there are things, energies that happen in the mind and body? Probably Donald will talk about them more tomorrow night. Energies that are naturally arising in human beings in their minds that just cloud the mind, make it hard to really connect with what's happening, really hard to see clearly what's happening. The, there are uh, components of the concentrated mind that actually are the natural antidotes to those clouds, and the clouds dissolve. If I do this practice in a diligent way, even if I don't feel very heartfeltly moved, just continue the diligence and my stories stop. The stories that I'm telling myself all day long. Do you ever notice how your mind tells stories all day long? Makes commentary on what's going on, likes it, it doesn't like it, oh, this is good, I'm glad this is happening, oh, I'm sorry, this is happening, when is this going to be over? I wonder how long this sitting is, I wonder if I should have come on a metta retreat. Probably mindfulness is better, I should have started with mindfulness, metta isn't so good. Maybe I should have gotten a job in the afternoon, it would have waked me up because I'm so sleepy. In the, the mind is all the time talking, it's like you took somebody else on the retreat with you, so you have the retreat. <laughs> And the commentator is giving like a sports commentator on television. There's a, first of all, there's the action, and then there's a commentator telling you what to think about the action. That is the best pass since 1995, whatever. It's, but there's a commentator in there. And doing, um, keeping the mind concentrated on these phrases, turning the attention repeatedly to the experience of the good heart, just stops those stories. When the stories stop, the body relaxes and the mind relaxes. And the stories, which carry all the information of who we like and who we don't like, and therefore who we wish well, who we wish sort of well, who we wouldn't mind well or not well one way or the other, who we actually don't wish so well, wish a little ill, all those stories fall away because there's nobody left to hold on to them. There's no commentator to remind us of the stories that are in the data bank. It would be a great pleasure to me if I could take a pill and dissolve the stories. Forget who's on the A list and the B list and the C list of people that I care about. I'd be more comfortable. So this is, this is really the second thing that I wanted to talk about. It's really where I wanted to talk about Mahagosananda as well. So I wanted to talk about... The first thing was that the benevolent heart is natural to us. We don't have to take lessons in it. We just have to remember it and dispel the clouds one way or another that hide it. The second thing I want to talk about is the fact that kindness is really the representation of wisdom. I didn't really understand that when I began this practice. Sally talked about that last night as well. There's a kind of a way in which when one first hears about uh, metta practice, it does have the sense of a valentine. We've talked about training the mind. 
to the benevolent response, learning the habit of compassionate response. It is that, but it's partly that. It's training the mind to the compassionate response because that response calms down the mind so that clear seeing is then possible and insight into what's really true is possible. And that insight about the fundamental ubiquitous presence of suffering in all conditioned forms in everyone's life is really what then leads, I think, to spontaneous kindness. It's as if we cultivate kindness, we practice kindness in order to clear the mind, in order to see what's true, in order for kindness to then generate itself just naturally. I think if we see clearly what's happening, we can't be anything but kind. So I want to tell you a little bit about Mahagosananda. I first heard about him um, in a personal way. I knew about him. I'd heard his name. I heard about him in a personal way from a friend of mine who was at a uh, conference, um, actually a convocation, in Auschwitz in uh, 1995, uh, in April of 1995, on the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And there were peace leaders from all over the world there. My friend is an American rabbi. She said, uh, she told me about how touching and how moving just the being there was. And uh, particularly the, the fact that on the very day, 50 years after the date of the liberation, there was a symbolic going out. They opened the gates of Auschwitz and this whole conference of people marched out of the gates. I always get goosebumps when I tell that. And this very march, a peace march, uh, continued on. People left it, people joined it, people left it, people joined it. And it ended in Hiroshima on August 6th of that same year, 50 years after the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Mahagosananda did not walk the whole way, but he was in Auschwitz. He was part of that. And he was in the in the Peace Plaza in Hiroshima five, uh, in that many months later. And my friend was impressed with him, uh, with his peaceful demeanor. She knew about the extraordinary peace work he had done in Cambodia. She knew about the ongoing peace work he has been doing in, in trying to get a worldwide ban on um, landmines. But she said he didn't say very much. She said other people talked, they gave long speeches, they had lots of things to contribute to the discussions. She said Mahagosananda didn't say very much. He said, may all beings be peaceful and may all beings be happy. She said that's about it. He didn't say much more than that. It wasn't a disrespectful thing, but I I thought about it a lot. Um, I met him a year later. I met him at a meeting of Western Buddhist teachers in uh, Dharamsala with the Dalai Lama. And um, it was an extraordinary experience for me to be invited to be there. 26 teachers from mostly Western teachers like myself, teaching Dharma in the West, talking about how it is to teach uh, Buddhism in Western culture. And Mahagosananda met us in Delhi and made the trip to Dharamsala with us, just to be there as a participant. And he, he was sat in on all the meetings. 
And he didn't say very much. He said, may all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. I took him to, this is an important side story to tell you. Good, I have enough time. Um, one evening, on, on the evening that we left Delhi to go to Dharamsala, um, we were congregated in the lobby of the Imperial Hotel in Delhi and uh, waiting to go to the station to take the night train up to Patankot and then on to Dharamsala. And uh, mostly everybody of the conference who was congregating there had gone off to eat supper. Nagasananda is a monk in the Theravada tradition, so he doesn't uh, eat after noon because that's part of the monk's vows. So uh, he was sitting on a sofa across from where I was sitting in the lobby, but we were the only two people from the conference there. And uh, I remember just how he looked to me. He's a, not a very big man. And um, uh, the Cambodian robes are quite bright orange. All of our Zabitans and Zafus here, uh, which are kind of monk's robes colors, are none of them as bright. Mahagosananda has kind of pumpkin color robes. And he had his legs tucked up under him on his sofa and his hands in his lap. And he's a little round person. He looked kind of like a pumpkin and so serene. But uh, monks can have uh, tea in the afternoon. And uh, monks don't carry money ever. And they only take food. And uh, you need to offer them food or tea. So I um, went over to him and I said, Venerable, can I... uh, offer you tea? And he said, yes, it'd be lovely. I said, I'll bring it for you. There was a tea shop right next to the lobby. And he said, no, no, I'll go with you. And so he got up and we walked across the lobby and I thought, this is, I wonder what this looks like, you know, the two of us, this little monk and oldish woman. <laughs> it's 10 years ago, it's an oldish, now old. <laughs> anyway, we walk into the tea shop and we're having tea together. I order the tea, we're having tea, and I'm trying to make a little conversation with him. And I said, my fr- I have a friend who met you last year at the meeting in Auschwitz, and I know that uh, you went on to uh, Hiroshima, and uh, I know that about the work that you did in Cambodia. I said, what are you doing these days? And he said, I'm working very hard on getting a, uh, an international ban on landmines, because there's so many landmines that are still going off in people's fields and people being maimed and killed all the time. So I said, what can I, can I do something to help you? What can I do for that cause? And he said, yes, you can. He said, um, I have a petition. And he honestly reached up the sleeve of his robes <laughs> and he took out a petition from up his sleeve. And he said, I have this petition that uh, you could have your students sign and send it. If you get uh, 50 signatures, you send it to the UN. I said I would. I did. But I, and I tell you that story. First of all, I love this story. But also, as part of uh, making the point that uh, Mahasagosananda, who seems to be so peaceful, so able to be just present in the moment, who I know has personally seen so much anguish in Cambodia, has personally been working so hard for the cause of peace in so many countries. 
is fluent, very well educated, tremendously highly educated, and fluent, Jack tells me, in seven or eight languages, is got a petition to end landmines uh, up his sleeve and doesn't say very much more than may all beings be peaceful and may all beings be happy. And I started to think at that point, half because it was a pleasant thought and half because I'm really thinking it's true, maybe there isn't anything else worthwhile saying. Maybe that's about it, you know, that everything else is commentary. That if you could manage, if I could manage to get a heart that in all circumstances would be able to say, may all beings be peaceful and may all beings be happy, in response to whatever is happening. Seeing the suffering, I think, is a key component. It's not in spite of the suffering that Mahagosananda has seen that he can say that. I think it's because of the suffering that he's seen that he can say that. Suffering is heart-stopping. There's nothing left to say except may all beings be peaceful and happy. That's the only thing that consoles one's own heart and adds anything worthwhile to the situation. It was very important last night that thought that when Sally was saying the instructions that she said, you know, as we tell the stories of the tsunami or even now as I tell you the story of Hiroshima or Auschwitz or Cambodia uh, or the landmines and really the things that we recognize as worldwide tremendous icons of pain. It's not to say that one's own inner pain and one's own inner suffering in response to that pain is in any way diminished. Pain is pain, she said. Suffering is suffering. The response, may I be peaceful and may I be happy. May all beings be peaceful and may all beings be happy. It's the universal, impartial response to the ubiquitous presence of suffering, personal suffering, worldwide suffering, every kind of suffering without hierarchies, every kind of suffering. I was a psychotherapist for many years, and I realized at some point uh, that I was not effective with people. If I was inattentive to any kind of hierarchy in my own mind, about the suffering that people presented to me. Somebody, people would come and say what was hurting them. I realized this after making enough mistakes that if in my mind I thought to myself, well, that's not really an important thing to be upset about. (laughs) You know, this person, as a matter of fact, that's a small thing. Uh, As a matter of fact, in this very person's life, if they want to be upset, they should be upset about this other thing, which is (laughs) way more important. I noticed, I actually learned that quite seriously, firmly, in a particular situation where I knew I was trying to work with somebody, and I, I liked her enough, I thought, and she liked me enough to not want to stop, but the knot in her mind was not getting any better. And I realized, I even thought, maybe I'm the wrong therapist, I even said, maybe I'm the wrong therapist, no, 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 I know you're not. And I caught myself one day 
thinking that hierarchical thought. She shouldn't be upset about this. She should be upset about that. And, I, and when I caught it, and I caught also that I had a um, not positive thought about her, for uncharitable thought about what she was upset about, what she really should be thought about, upset about. When I realized that, I think, whoa. I realized she's upset. Pain is pain. Suffering is suffering. And in that moment, the feeling between us changed. And in that moment, our whole situation began to change. And in that moment, things changed. And I, I'm glad to say that I think she felt better from the work we did together. But it took me a mile, a while to realize that I was making a story about what she should be upset about. Pain is pain and suffering is suffering. I thought so much about what we could learn from the lessons of uh, last week. I'll tell you a story about an important lesson that I learned. My response to the uh, tsunami was complicated. I first heard about it. I felt overwhelmed, as we all did had a number of phone calls from people to say, ah, you're home, because I had just flown home the day before from a holiday in in an island in the Pacific. I wasn't in the island in the Indian Ocean. But suddenly everybody got worried about where everybody they knew was, especially if they were on an island somewhere. I heard two stories, though, in the days afterwards, two stories of... um, different people's experiences. One of them, uh, I would turn on the radio as I was in my car. I heard a story about, um, spoken to a, an NPR reporter who was then telling it, about a man who was on the beach not far from an ocean, the ocean in India, picked up his three-year-old son and was carried by a wave for 300 yards out and talked about how he clutched his son next to him, and how the wave just carried them, actually, 300, 400 yards, and hit them into trees and buildings, and overwhelmed them, choking and trying to hold his son out of the water. Uh, Just blow-by-blow brutality of his experience, and trying so hard to keep his head above water, the child's head above water. And finally, uh, the wave continued past him, and his passage with the wave was stopped as he was flung against the wall of a building. And actually, then the wave came back, and he survived. But as he was flung against the wall of the building, the shock of the fling caused his arms to open, and his child fell out and went out with the wave. That was one story. I heard a story about a grandmother who was on the beach with a two-year-old and a five-year-old, on the shore with a two-year-old and a five-year-old, and got caught up in the wave and couldn't swim with holding two children and had to let go of one of them and let go of the five-year-old. And a day later discovered that the five-year-old had been carried over to a door that was floating and gotten on it and was alive. So there's two stories. In one of them, where you think, oh, 
this woman has made this terrible choice and, and both children came out alive. In the other one, he and his father tried as hard as he could and just got hit against the building and the child was gone. You think to yourself, I think to myself, I listened to all those stories, magnified by thousands of stories, tens of thousands, a hundred thousand stories now, more than that, of people who survived. And we don't know the stories of the people who didn't. You think to yourself, why one and why not the other? And I think to myself, those stories don't, I think the Buddha would have said, they don't tend in the direction of edification. When he taught about karma, you don't know why not. It's just it worked out this way for one person and that way for another person. But I think that the lesson that I learned from it, that I think I thought the whole world might be learning, is really the fragility of life. You don't know, ever, what's going to happen. You could be this. You could be this far away or that far away. One of my cousins. Um, Sons was on the beach at Phuket until six hours before the tsunami. And then he left to Bangkok and got on a plane home to Sydney. But he was there six hours before. Someone who was there six minutes before got away from it. When you think about it, everyone who is here in this room was either six minutes or six miles or six something away from every accident that ever happened and every tsunami. We are here just because the karma of our lives so far has been such that we haven't been in an intersection as a car was out of control. A tsunami is a magnified version of the fragility of every single life. Now, somebody probably drowned swimming in a swimming pool on the same day. For that family, it's the same bereft as for the world family with this. I thought when it happened, and we saw in such a magnified way on the television, the fragility of life, really the, um, the vulnerability that we all are, how one minute we could be alive in the best of health and next minute gone. We realize the fragileness of life, that everyone dies, and when they do, people are bereft. And everyone cherishes their life so much. We know that because we do of ourselves. I thought to myself, fleetingly, everyone is suddenly going to get it, what the Buddha taught, first of all, about impermanence. And really, the line from the Dhammapada that says, anyone who realizes impermanence ceases to be contentious. I thought, finally, the whole world together, communally, is going to get it. It's like when you go in a hospital and all of a sudden you walk down a hospital corridor and you're talking to somebody in a regular voice, but you realize as you walk down the corridor, everybody in these rooms is very sick and the people with them are very fragile and you lower your voice because all of a sudden you realize, ah. Or you go in a cemetery, um, maybe because you are going to a funeral. And you see another funeral over there, and you don't know who those people are, but you feel about them. And if one of those people were one of your enemies in that moment, you would forget about what you were mad about them about because they're burying somebody. I thought to myself, suddenly, the world is going to get it about impermanence. And suddenly, collectively, everyone is going to put down their guns. 
all the wars are going to stop. Everyone is going to share their food. Everyone is going to take in all the homeless. We are going to share medical supplies. We are really going to have a different world tomorrow because everyone will have learned. And then it didn't happen. Everybody made a big outpouring and is making a big outpouring of support, which I am very happy about, so I haven't given up help, hope. But wars are still going on. And what happened to me for a couple of days, and I'm telling you this because the couple of days have passed, is instead of compassion, what I was feeling was mad. I got mad. I suddenly got so mad about wars going on. I got so mad that the United States is in a war. I got mad at, I got mad at lots of things. I've been working really hard since the election not to be mad at anybody. And sometimes I manage and sometimes I don't. And suddenly, maybe two days after the mad, it was hard, I had to come to Spirit Rock to teach on Wednesday morning. And I said to my friends, you know, it's hard for me to go because I'd like to go and be a voice, a calm voice for peace and hope. And the truth is I'm mad. So how am I going to do it? And that afternoon or the next day or the next day, I suddenly realized that I got caught in mad because of the enormity of the grief. And it was easier to be mad. It was easier to be mad as if being mad and as if thinking if everyone had done it my way it would be different would make a difference and the way I realized it didn't make a difference was I saw two pictures uh, on the front page of the New York Times probably in two consecutive days two photos one of them was a marine combat gear on crutches saluting the memorial statues that they make for fallen soldiers. Have you seen pictures of them? They put boots and they put a rifle and they put a helmet on the rifle and they put a photo. And that's what has now become the normal way of recognizing people at military funerals. And I read um, the article about this particular person. He'd been wounded in that, in a bombing, and some of his friends had been killed. And I read the line about how hard it was for him to let go of his crutches to salute that memorial. I started to cry about it. And the stories that I had in my mind about he shouldn't have gone to war, he should have been a conscientious objector, we shouldn't have had a war. We should have this, we should have that. All the we should have went away. He was there. It happened. Wars are happening because there is still greed, hatred, and delusion in the world. There's no one responsible. There are no villains. He's in pain. And I got that because of another picture on the front page of the, another photo on the front page of the newspaper. And uh, it was a photo of um, an older woman sitting on the ground with um, a lot of what looked like people sleeping around her. Um, some old women, mostly children, a baby right next to her. But they weren't sleeping, they're all dead, they're all drowned, they're all laid out there. And she's literally tearing out her hair, 
the face of grief is enormous. I looked at her and I looked at the soldier and I thought they're both in terrible pain. It doesn't matter. I had been in my mind carrying on for a couple of days about a tsunami is amoral and war is immoral. Pain is pain and suffering is suffering. If there are wars where people are killing each other, it's because there's greed, hatred, and delusion in the world that we haven't finished with yet, that's all. My righteous indignation doesn't help the world, doesn't help the pain, doesn't help me. The only thing that's really left is may all beings be peaceful and may all beings be happy. My having a list of people who are responsible creates anger in my heart and ill will in my heart. I think about Deepama and her no ill will. There's nothing in my mind but peace and concentration and metta. Think about a line from Thomas Merton where he was talking about what it had all come down for for him. He said, this whole of life, he said, it's all suffering and it's all compassion. Wishing people well is compassion practice. All of the forms of metta, goodwill, compassion, empathic joy, they're all different ways in which the heart responds. It befriends, it consoles, it appreciates. I'm really quite clear that at the same time that we talk about this practice of cultivating a good heart, and a clear mind that sustains a good heart, being on behalf of all beings. I'm also quite clear that it's on behalf of me, that it protects me. One of the metta chants begins with the line, may I be free of enmity and danger. I used to think that maybe that meant, the first time I heard it, I think, I thought it meant may nobody be after me. May I, you know, the danger of having enemies after me. I'm quite clear that the enmity that I want to be free of is my own. I would love to have no ill will. I think of my mindfulness practice and my metta practice as being quite integrated one with the other. I think that what I am practicing is mindfulness of the climate of my heart. I get mad and I get annoyed and I get irritated but not for as long as I used to. I really want not to have that. Or I want to be able to say, I'm annoyed and irritated, but I don't have to be, I don't have to have ill will at anyone for irritating me. I don't have to be irritated at myself. I don't have to have ill will on myself for having become irritated. People become irritated. Like babies, they become cranky. They get overstimulated, they become cranky. You don't have to have ill will towards them. Just take care of them. You comfort them. I can comfort myself if I'm cross and grumpy. I don't have to be mad at myself for cross. I don't have to be mad at someone else for making me cross. I thought I would uh, tell you my grandfather's uh, colloquialism, which I've recently 
come to appreciate as um, metta practice. Uh, I, I don't think he thought, he, I don't think he knew it was that, but uh, he had a kind of colloquialism of speech where he would say, for instance, um, my daughter Gladys, may she rest in peace, had a much uh, more relaxed personality than my daughter Miriam, may she live and be well. And uh, it also did not require that you had to be making a comparison between A and B. He would say, my uh, grandson Henry, may he live and be well, is a very good cook. This is a plain declarative sentence. Um, my wife, uh, Bessie, may she live and be well, has become a lot crankier as she's gotten older, <laughs> which is why I've come to live with you. Uh, I came to, I came to, I, I came to, I think he did that because it was a colloquialism of Eastern European Yiddish. That's all. I think he thought that when you mention a person's name, if you don't cover it with a protection mantra, then it was open for any, who knows what kind of bad things there might be out there. So you have to protect people. My daughter, may she rest in peace. My other daughter, may she live and be well. Because you're either in one or two categories. You're either in category A or B. So you could say that about everybody. But actually, what I realized is that what he was doing was he was protecting himself from ill will that might come up in himself if he has to say something not nice about somebody. My wife, Bessie, may she live and be well, has become a lot more cranky as she's gotten older, which is why I came to live with you. May she live and be well. He actually didn't have ill will. My nephew, Murray, may he live and be well, had this idea that we should go into business together and we lost a lot of money because he didn't in advance check out this and that and the other. But he kept his mind free of ill will. May he live and be well. May he live and be well. May she rest in peace. I think he kept his own heart from manifesting ill will. So I've actually taken that up as a practice. I like that a lot. And I, I do it a lot with my friends now. They all know about it, and they do it back. So if I'm about to say something grumpy, even about anybody, you know, my son so-and-so, may he live and be well, it means if I'm about to say something about someone who's made me cross, I can just be given a report. They made me cross, but I have no ill will. It's way better. It's a scaled-down version of, uh, but maybe not. Maybe I'm working up to it of may all beings be peaceful and may all beings be happy. There's a tremendous freedom in not having anybody that, if there's no ill will, means I do not recriminate this moment. I don't reproach this moment. Let's end by my reminding you of what James Audubon said about his wife. Because the great line, the great word of that, I think, is no reproaches from her beloved lips ever wounded my heart. Put that together with the statement of the Buddha. Anyone who understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. Life is very fleeting. We are very vulnerable. Old or young, it could end at any time. I only have this moment to live this moment. It can't be other than the way it is. If I am mad at this moment, or mad at this person in this moment, I have used up this moment's potential for being a blessing moment.
I don't get to do it again. If I am going to habituate my mind and my heart to blessing and habituate it to the wisdom that supports that blessing, I haven't got a moment to lose. No reproach ever came from her beloved lips that wounded my heart. Imagine if everybody would suddenly end reproach, no more ill will. We could put down the arms, we could feed each other, we could take each other in, we could really have a new world. May it be so that our practice is a contribution to peace in our own hearts and peace in the world. We can just sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 3, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.